Lord, would you speak to us now through your word and grant us hearts and minds open to receive the message that you have for each one of us. Amen. Well, this last day of the year is a good opportunity to reflect upon the events of 2023 and how they affected us and ponder the year ahead and what it may hold. And as we begin today with the first in a series of talks looking at the three letters of the Apostle and Gospel writer John, I hope that this first letter uh, will help us in both of those deliberations, providing, as it does, a firm foundation from the past and guidance and encouragement for the future. Commentators believe that John wrote the letter sometime after 80 AD in Ephesus, which had become his base after he and other apostles had fled Jerusalem around 66 AD due to the war that destroyed that city. He wrote the letter in response to a heresy circulating in Ephesus at that time from a chap called Serinthus, who taught that Jesus was the physical son of Joseph and that the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus at his baptism but left him before he was crucified. Serinthus rejected all the Gospels and Paul's letters and so John was prompted to write to churches under his care to remind them of the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the letter begins unlike other letters in the New Testament. Instead of the normal preamble and greeting, John gets straight to the point. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we beheld, and touched concerning the word of life. Note that the expression used here for beginning, which has no article in the Greek, it's just in beginning, is the same phrase found in Genesis 1. In beginning, God created the earth. That marks the moment when time began for the acts of creation that followed. And the same phrase is also in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, describing the same moment, but emphasizing that the logos, the word he uses for the Son, the second person of the Godhead, whom John, alone among Gospel writers, calls the word logos in the Greek because he embodies the will and thought of God. This logos was in existence long before he came to earth. And although the next four statements refer to this logos, the expressions are all neuter, not masculine, as one might expect. And that's because the neuter clauses comprise not only the person, but all that he was and is and ever will be for those who follow him, his grace, his power, and the salvation that he brings. And John confirms that it was this logos, the word of life, Zoe, 
the Greek word for spiritual or eternal life, that he and his fellow apostles heard and saw. And the tense of the verb implies that the hearing and seeing continue to have an effect upon them. And the tense of the other verbs used makes the point that the apostles did actually behold and handle. The sense, therefore, is that what these witnesses saw with their own eyes, they examined at close quarters using their hands to confirm the experience of their eyes and ears. So a complete and undeniable witness which stands against the claims of Cerinthus and his supporters who are not witnesses and therefore have heard, seen and touched nothing. And yet in their fancy they deny the deity of Jesus. John continues in verse 2, the life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This manifestation of <coughs> the life, the word of life, includes the whole of Jesus' earthly existence, but in particular his public ministry when the apostles were with him. So the period from his baptism in the River Jordan to his ascension. And the verb to testify is the Greek martyrumen, from which martyr is derived. So many Christian witnesses having been killed for their faith over the centuries, as indeed they still are. And verses 3 and 4 bring us to the conclusion of the opening paragraph. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. In other words, though many of the apostles are dead, their witness lives on. So those who come to believe their testimony can thus have fellowship with them. And since the apostles' witness stands for all time, believers down the ages, including we as their successors, can also, in that sense, have fellowship with them. John continues, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. It's a definite statement. There's no maybe. The apostles are in fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus, and so are we through our own faith. John's personal testimony stands as a bastion against the attempts by Cerinthus to contradict, based on no witnesses at all, just his own imaginings, the good news of the Gospels and to destroy the fellowship of believers. So there we have a firm foundation for the truth that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And John ends by revealing another motive for his letter. We write this to make our joy complete. Joy 
should be a hallmark of the Christian life, and yet so often it's missing, isn't it? Snuffed out sometimes by our own behavior or squabbling uh, or critics who cast doubt or outright enemies who want to destroy our faith and us. Second part of our passage looks forward, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, phos in the Greek. In him there is no darkness at all, and literally, and darkness in him not is none. So it's a double negative emphasizing that there is not even a trace of darkness in our holy God. And it follows in verse 6, therefore, that if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Literally, in the Greek, we do not do the truth. Christians are meant to interact with others, one evangelist said, by truthing it in love. A lovely expression that is, isn't it? truthing it in love, making truth a verb and a way of life. Jesus, as the light of the world, embodies God's righteousness, his holiness, and his love for us, and they radiate from him like the rays of the sun and are always available to those who seek. Now, just as light has a number of attributes, so walking in darkness, Scotia in the Greek, from which Scotland is derived, also encompasses facets, but this time of evil, of deceit, error, lying, suppression of truth. On the other hand, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Walking in the light means believing the gospel and doing its truth, which in turn will underpin our fellowship with one another and our mutual fellowship with God, so that we become true members of the Una Sancta, the universal church, or the communion of saints, as the Apostles' Creed describes it. Now all this mention of walking in the light, having fellowship with one another and with God, all sounds very cosy and comfortable, doesn't it? And might tempt us to overlook the fact that no one can possibly achieve that on their own. As Paul says in Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. So we all sin. Now, of course, sin is not a very popular word these days, but literally in the Greek, there is a military connotation to it. It means simply a missing of the mark. Picture an archer aiming at the bullseye in a target. So sin is any thought, word, or deed which causes one to fail to reach the perfect standard set by God's law, that bullseye. But you have to hit it every time, every single time. And clearly, no one can attain such 
perfection and we could never be free from the power of sin over our lives unless the one whom God sent does it for us, which is John's next point. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. This is the crux of his argument against the claims of Serinthus, and he expands it in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the tense of the verb, confess, implies that it is a continuing process. It's not just a few times a year in a confessional or at a special service. No, it should be part of our way of life. It's what doing the truth day in, day out looks like. And if we do the truth in that way, faithful and righteous is he, God, to forgive our sins. And actually our word forgive is a poor translation from the Greek, which means a phasis to send away as far as the east is from the west or into the deepest ocean, never to be heard of or remembered again. And that's the proper way to deal with the mistakes we make, the evil that we perpetrate, and everything that makes our lives miserable and tends towards darkness. And John closes with a final warning in verse 10. If we claim that we have not sinned, and the tense implies again a continuous process, not just one-offs, as, as you hear sometimes abusers try to defend themselves with that, don't they? They say, well, it's only, it was only a one-off, you know, it was out of character, I only did it once. If you carry on like that, deceiving yourselves, we make him out, God, to be a liar. And his word and all that we've seen that it stands for has no place in our lives. The JP carried a headline the other day, fewer than two in five islanders have religion. And uh, it seemed to me that it was almost a triumphant in tone, especially since the article then stirred things up even further by bringing in a committee member of the Channel Islands humanists who talked about the need for assisted dying. Rather than pretending that the human race is doing a great job acting as its own North Star and exalting ourselves to the status of God, can I suggest that the world needs to hear from John just as we have, in the hope that folk will take the message to heart and acknowledge the truth to which it witnesses. And as this Christmas comes to a close, I quote from Howard Thurman, the theologian and US civil rights leader who explained the real reason that Logos, the word of life, came and lived among us. He said this, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the wise men are home and the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost to heal the broken, 
to feed the hungry, to release the prisoners, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among people, and to make music in the heart. That's the purpose of walking in the light, and there's no better way of life. Amen.